Welcome to the very first episode of Time to Talk with Alex Reeds. Hello, I'm Alex Reeds, and this is Time to Talk, the space where we discuss anything from masculinity, mental health, love, careers, parenthood, and so much more, exploring the all-important reasons for talking about the core things that make us us. In these first series of episodes, I will be speaking to guests about masculinity, what it means to them, and getting varied stories from all backgrounds, ranging from class and sexuality to race and religion. Why? Because without a space to talk, we don't have space to fully live our lives. That being said, let's get on with the show. this series i wanted to do something slightly different and i wanted you to actually hear what i'm thinking so i've created a section called notes to self in this segment i'll be sharing a message um, an anecdote a story or something that is relevant to the episode and it's usually something that's just on my mind that week and i wanted to make sure that i share it with you every week at the top of the show before we get into the long winding conversation that I tend to have. So without further ado, this is Notes to Self. This is to all of the men. This is to all the men and all the people who love men. Brothers, cousins, sisters, mothers, fathers and partners. This is to every man who struggles to get up in the morning, to keep his head high as he walks. To every man of colour, creed, sexuality. To every man who is struggling to love. To every man who is struggling to love themselves. To every man who is struggling to ask for love or to love their partners. This is to all the men and women listening who deserve love, solidarity, warmth and happiness. Yesterday, I watched the news and I teared up because what's happening in the world just can't be real. And I sat down and thought, ah, well, I'm way too sensitive for this, which is probably why my time as a news reporter was so short-lived. I'll be real with you. Over the past few months, I've been fighting depression and anxiety, and it's taken a lot out of me. Trying to take care of myself in order to fight the depression kitty or the shame wizard for entering my mental space has been hard, but I have been struggling at times. Struggling with exceeding my own expectations wanting to keep on striving for things that I know would make my life better or think would make my life better. Worrying that I'm not living enough or at all. And because of that worry, I begin to abuse myself. I stop going to the gym because pain in my body is multiplying. I stop writing because I don't feel like I have anything to say. I eat poorly because I just need something to fill this kind of void inside. And I begin to listen to the malevolent voice inside my head. I call him Jerome. So all this happens when I don't look after myself. Another thing was that my friend told me that I should write 
gratitudes. Um, I went through a period of time where I didn't think that anybody did anything nice. I didn't think that anybody helped me. I didn't think that anybody supported me. My friend, she really sat down with me and said, that's not true. Make sure that each day you write something about someone that's done something good or something that's made you feel good that day. So every day I write something, whether it be the bus driver opening the door, like when I'm not paying attention on the road, or just somebody smiling or saying hello. These are the things that remind you that you're not alone in the world and no man is an island. Also, move. I stretch for 30 minutes a day and it makes me feel better. Let's look after ourselves and reach out to others this International Men's Day. Reach out to a loved one. Men of all conformities, you are loved, strong and valuable. Women of all conformities, your men are still capable of love and loving you. That is Notes to Self. This week, I am super excited to introduce the comedian extraordinaire, Dane Baptiste. This week, we talk about everything from mental health, men's mental health, black mental health, sexuality, sex, masculinity, gender fluidity, love, everything. We have it all in this episode. I am so excited for you guys to hear this episode. Really looking forward to it. Let me introduce my guest, Dane Baptiste. Hey, Dane, how are you doing? I'm good, Alex. How are you? I'm okay. I'm okay. Describe your 2019 in one sentence for me, please. Uh, <coughs> trying? <laughs> trying. Yeah. Oh, no. That's not the word I want to find. It's a... Uh, I can't... I don't pronounce words properly. Okay. Revelatory? Is that Revel- the Revelatory? Revelatory. Revelatory. Revelatory? That's how you say it. Rev- I don't know. That's what I'm saying. So... I- um, so it's it's been a, it's been a, it's been an interesting it's interesting I'd say interesting okay okay do you know what I feel like this year has been a thousand years um, I feel like it's a very been a very long one yeah a very tough one mm-hmm. you know coming up to a general election nobody knows what's going on with the country everything's up and down yeah yeah but you feel like it's been revelatory what have you been what has been revealed to you well I feel like 2019 has definitely exemplified the idea in my idea or theory is mm. that we've gotten to the apex of our current uh, reality in that you know, post-war uh, in the West, you know, we've had a lot of systems that I guess have existed to benefit this part of the world mm-hmm. and have been used as the, uh, I guess, moral compass to which the rest of the world orientates its conduct, whether it's geopolitically or economically. But I think we've gotten to the point now where it's like these systems have now become obsolete mm-hmm. and I think we need to reassess the uh, institutions which govern uh, our society. Yeah. So when you say about stuff like general election stuff, I'm like... I think it's very clear now that mm-hmm. these people have no idea what the hell they're doing. Nope. And we've gotten to the point where giving over our power to our uh, supposed superiors mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily work because I think it's very clear that we are dealing with our uh, inferiors, platonically speaking. Because I'm always saying that, like, fair enough, if you are somebody that believes in the tenets of the West and, you know, its ascension to power as a hegemon- hegemony over the world, mm-hmm. that's cool. But if Donald Trump is the best of you, then that, there's, a, there's a problem with that. Yeah. Because even if, like I said, if you, even if you are a white supremacist, capitalist, industrialist that believes in like, you know, uh, imperialism and, uh, you know, Western superiority, mm-hmm. cool. But if the president is someone who cannot even name one passage in the Bible and has never had a business uh. that has ever been successful and is now... Legally, is not allowed to go near a charity yeah. because of money laundering. 
then there's a problem. Yeah. And, and like I said, because we all tend to kind of orientate our moral compass to the West, you now have probably one of the most morally bereft people in power, mm-hmm. which you can see has led to a, what is a very clear moral recession. Yeah, okay. So, as I say, it's interesting because it's like, for a long time, this is how, I guess, people outside of like dominant culture have spoken about dominant culture, mm-hmm. but now the whole world can see it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's 2019. Yeah, so for me, I just love it. I like being right, in it. Yeah. And I'm just saying these people ain't shit, and now <laughs> everyone knows that. I didn't check if I could swear on this. You can. All right, these people right. ain't shit, and now the world knows that they ain't shit. Okay. So that's why 2019 is uh, interesting and uh, revelatory for me. I like that. I like that. So, you know, we tend to have discussions around masculinity, around mm-hmm. life, around all sorts of stuff in between. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to kind of start the conversation by looking at upbringing yeah. and where that and how that kind of shaped you and shaped your identity as, of who you are. So who were you as a boy? What was that like? Um, I can say I am the exact same person I was when I was a boy. The exact same person? Pretty much, yeah. In terms of my uh, ideological disposition, mm. my, uh, the way I look at the world and stuff, it's almost completely the same. Mm. And uh, I guess that's been beneficial now that I'm in the uh, line of work I've always wanted to be in. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess I was somewhat fortunate in my upbringing, I guess where discussions about identity politics and gender is concerned, because... Mm. Uh, I was the first boy in my generation of cousins. Oh, okay. So my mother has uh, six so sisters. Yeah, exactly. So we just worked out. My, oh, my, my, dad's, side. Oh, my dad's side. Yeah. My dad's side, um, not so much, but like my uh, mum's side, she has six sisters. And on average, my aunts have two daughters each. So I was yeah. like, yeah, the first boy. And uh, it meant, I guess now in this, uh, I guess, astrological age of Aquarius and in this social time of like third wave feminism, like yeah. there's, there's nothing that I find threatening or surprising because everyone I always saw achieve and was always a woman anyway. Mm-hmm. So I, everyone's who's been my primary carers and educators were all women and people I saw driving first and fixing tires or going to higher education were all women as well. Mm-hmm. And you know, I know my dad is obviously very active in my life, but my dad would every weekend when... He, he doesn't go to... My dad, I've never seen my dad go to church for any other reason other than like a christening or like a wedding. Yeah. But he always would go to his mother's house on a Sunday. So mm-hmm. I learned... And my dad is, is a... Has always had jobs like he's working with his hands, mechanic mm. and security mm. guard and stuff like that. And then, so for me, he was always very masculine, mm. and I always thought I always felt quite feminine because I was around women yeah, all the time. Same, yeah. But a big part of, I guess, my dad's uh, complex of his masculinity was that he must uh, be at uh, service of his mother. So yeah, I was like, yeah. a real man knows yeah. that women come first. So, so are you, you're Caribbean descent. Yeah, yeah. Which, family from Grenada. 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 So yeah. I feel like in Caribbean and, families, like the the mother. The mother's side of the family, and the mother is quite the center. I think most matriarchal. I, mean, I think I think most uh, cultures within the diaspora are matriarchal in nature. Yeah. I feel like most cultures, like you know, outside of the West, like you know, you look at the Indian subcontinent and anywhere where you had like you know polytheism and a Parthenon of like uh, goddesses mm-hmm, mm-hmm. would have been quite matriarchal anyway. Yeah. Um, and also, like in Grenada, like Morris Bishop, who was uh, prior to the invasion of Grenada in 1982. So he founded a women's association mm. and uh, it was kind of like a quasi-socialist idea where they would be securing like women's rights in terms of maternity and employment. And that's on a Caribbean island like, you know, like almost 30 plus years ago. Yeah. So, I mean, my family was also quite progressive. My mother was a nurse. Yeah. So it meant like, you know, her attitudes towards like sexuality and mm. uh, I guess uh, birth control and stuff like that. She always made me kind of aware of these things anyway. Mm. So mm. as I said, like, you know, there's, yeah. there's, there's no mystique about women that I have, you know, because I was, yeah, all the time. So, like, because when we look at that and we look into 
you know, where our fathers fit and the way they sit into that. Because mm-hmm. you're saying that your dad was there. And, Always, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, well, where did they fit into that kind of matriarchal, like, I mean, life? You know, we're going back to their mums on the Sunday. You know, yeah, he goes, his like, mom, he goes to his mum on the Sunday. He goes to see my grandmother every Sunday. We go along as well. Yeah. Um, but I, 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 like I said, I can't think of an alternative way of being because mm. for me, that's just, that's a frame of reference I had is that, like, it's a great... Me- and then I guess growing up and even seeing... Uh, more classic archetypes of masculine archetypes, like in a form of like watching like mafia films and stuff like that. Yeah. It's always like, what is she? you have to take care of your mother. Your mother mm. comes first. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I guess that's where you sit in it. Is as I said, it is just a big part of the uh, one of the uh, indicators of your masculinity would be how you treat the women around you, mm. and that meant either by carrying yourself in a way where you would be a viable partner to women, or you know you are a reliable uh, source of masculinity, mm. or like your. Uh, peers or for like your relatives yeah. or like you know like I said it's just uh, all the people I admired with and you know I would look to role models that would represent myself and a lot of the time if you are a black person of the diaspora yeah. normally you only see people with uh, social mobility or in places of status in what I would refer to as the holy trinity of sports, drugs or entertainment okay and um, it's pretty much yeah. pretty much it isn't it pretty much it pretty much it and so like that was always the big thing is that you get, when you get on and like if you're a rapper and you're doing well for yourself, the first thing you do is you can move your mum out the hood or you can take yeah. care of your mum or you can buy her groceries. So Yeah, you never actually see what happens with the dad, especially if you look at films like Boys yeah. in the Hood and stuff. It's like he went to his dad and his dad was, you know. Yeah, well, I guess and that's the thing, I guess, we've all classical ideas that your dad is supposed to uh, administer the, uh, or help you nurture the masculine aspect of your brain. So, mm. you know, I suppose uh, empathy and creativity are elements of the feminine hemisphere. Whereas I guess the masculine hemisphere would deal with like logical mm-hmm. thinking and spatial thinking and I guess what we'd refer to as rational thinking. So okay. I guess I was always a romantic and in terms of like with me and my dad watching something, I'd be like, Dad, I can't believe this is happening. Mm-hmm. And something must be done and be like a real idealist. And he was always very uh, stoic and just be like, well, you know, then certain aspects of elements of life that won't change, like death and taxes will always be a certainty <laughs> yeah. in our society and yeah. stuff. And always found a way to like very... Uh, he was always very calm in terms of his narrative anyway. Mm. Having a larger female influence allowed me to have a positive uh, connection with my emotions. Mm-hmm. Whereas I guess my dad provided that balance in terms of how to rationalise and know when to engage and when not to. So it was a positive interaction you had with your dad? Oh yeah, massively, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, think, I think probably the last decade or so has uh, probably helped to really strengthen the bond I have with my parents because... Mm. Uh, I'm now able to see them as people and not just as parents. Yeah, and like uh, they've kind of like lifted the veil. Yeah, yeah. I, I, well, I, saw it, right? I saw it myself. Yeah, it's yeah. Quite, I've just seen the Matrix and realizing that, like, yeah. when we talk about uh, uh, position, uh, people in positions of authority, whether it's within your own family or within, uh, you know, professional paradigms or social ones, like they're still people too. Yeah. And uh, I just have to give my power over to that. What was it that kind of triggered that? That kind of seeing them as human. Um, just living at home longer than I needed to uh-huh. because okay. I was just uh, getting into comedy which didn't pay it fantastically well oh, initially right, okay. so being at home okay. but yeah just but just just you know just paying attention to people and I guess my own maturity and seeing what I may have perceived to be flaws within my own character and seeing my parents do that as well mm. and just yeah just you know I think this all came as a part of a journey for myself personally to just take responsibility for my own life mm-hmm. and uh, I had like uh, a period of having CBT um, oh, okay. So cognitive behavioral therapy for anyone who doesn't know. Yeah. But you know, one of the, the first session I had, and I spoke about my life, and then uh, my therapist was like, "So you don't blame your parents?" And I was like, Mm-mm. "No, I mean, they don't have any prior experience. Other, with parents, they don't have any prior experience until they have kids, anyway. So mm-hmm. people can and people can only show you what they've learned. 
Mm-hmm. And, and you know, sometimes where I speak to people and they might flippantly be like, oh, my mom doesn't get on with me or my dad doesn't like this or that. And it's like, mm-hmm. you can hear certain aspects of your parents' lives mm-hmm. and work out why they may be lacking in that. Yeah. So, for example, my mom can sometimes be quite overbearing. Yeah. And I just, you know, like most mothers of the diaspora are very, very focused. Yeah, so on, they're just involved. Yeah, in case, very, very much yeah. involved, which is mm-hmm. more positive because that's someone giving you positive reinforcement or negative yeah. when it's needed. Well, not negative reinforcement. But positive <laughs> reinforcement in the form of maybe tough love or just yeah. being very f- scrutinizing my actions. Okay. But, you know, and at some point I might be like, oh, mom, ease off, I'm a man and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I'm trying to assert my independence. Yeah. But then I have to remember, this is somebody that didn't grow up with any brothers. Yeah. So she's oh. not had any prior experience in terms of you know in terms of fraternity or even interacting with the masculine outside of her marriage. Very similar. Yeah, actually, but yeah. exactly. Where, however, mm. her relationship with my dad is going to be very different in relationship with me mm-hmm. because you not know a child. Yeah, on the child. Yeah. yeah. Whereas the boundaries they have between themselves are going to be very different. So recognizing that and realizing, you know, again, she has no prior experience and has to deal with like someone yeah. becoming an adult. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What was your dad? like then like as a person what was his personality like you said you said he was stoic yeah you said that he kind of like kind of gave you that i don't know that identifying the kind of the masculine side of yeah the what was he like was he strict was he kind like um, i want to say kind if he i mean he's kind but he yeah he wasn't, was he, wasn't like? really, he wasn't really that strict my dad he, but my dad kind of i guess has always been able to not say much but when he says it it sticks mm-hmm. and so yeah, yeah there's, there's something that I don't know. There's yeah. something about that. Something about it. But, he's yeah. a, but he was a man of few words. But then, like I said, I've learned that like still waters run deep. And like, you know, yeah. my dad has a real creative side as well, which wasn't just expressed between like using cars and stuff. Like he used to do, he used to draw and sketch every now and again. He used to make his own beer and wine. So, you know, he was always a certain part of... Make us, his own beer and wine? Yeah. All oh, right. So he made, yeah, which I, I found quite impressive. So, you know... Oh, how was it? Did it taste good? Oh, not too young at the time. So, <laughs> yeah. But um, so nothing matured into your yeah nothing matured but but yeah I think yeah he's not, uh, there's no vintage bottles that I've seen oh, right. but who knows but um but yeah he uh yeah I just feel like you know he's uh mm-hmm. he tries his best to be a good person man and yeah. uh, has always been able to think critically about stuff I think again very privileged because my dad for example church is normally a given for the for Caribbean people my dad never used to go to church mm-hmm. and so I guess it meant that I would never have my uh, thinking. Uh, impeded by like theological yeah. belief and stuff because my dad never missed a day of work he never lied never cheated never stole Yeah, and didn't it's require upstanding did, yeah, yeah upstanding but didn't require you know he didn't have a basis of because God tells me yeah, so yeah, it, that, was just, you know, like, it was just with him he recognizes the rationality in terms of the two binary forces yeah. physical forces of order and chaos mm-hmm. that you know order is going to lead to more prosperity yeah. for human beings so you mentioned that you had uh, so you said the, the initial role models that you saw were the women in your life, so yeah. it was like your mum, your aunties. And my imagine, older sister, yeah, I, I didn't have an older brother, so my older, older sister was a big role model. It's a really weird question, but who taught you how to be a man? Like, what was that kind of transition into, like, you owning yourself as a, as a man, and what was that um, like for you? I guess the way I learned to be a man was that there was no lessons I was given or any kind of path of discipline which was prefaced by you need to be a man to do this mm. or this was what makes you a man that was that was never it so so far as being a man i don't make a big distinction in terms of my gender in terms of what makes me a man mm-hmm. versus what makes somebody a woman it's just i think as an adult it's just about you having an awareness of self and taking responsibility for your own life and actions yeah so for me that's what makes me a man other than that I don't really give that much thought to binary ideas about gender. Okay. I think in a lot of time when people are discussing the masculine and feminine, they're talking in very crystallized forms mm-hmm. of like, you're a man, you're masculine, you're a woman, you're feminine, which is not how it works. Like, masculine and feminine pertain to hemispheres of your brain mm-hmm. and they, you know, left and right hemisphere thinking, which, and, they, which mean, and they interact. So, yeah, this idea of me just being 
a man, which means I don't entertain the feminine or in all aspects of my life, the masculine okay. hemisphere prevails. I just don't believe in that. So for me... So, yeah, so they kind of mesh and they, and they, yeah, they go in because, together. So yeah, so because, and I say that because like, I don't know what can make anybody a man. Yeah, did you always it, feel like that? Like Yes, I mean, yeah, I, I guess, I, I, yeah, mm. I, don't, I don't see what makes, I, don't, I never thought well, this makes you less of a man because of this or, yeah. you know, I, I'm, I'm somebody that, I'm, more, I'm interested in like souls and consciousness myself. Yeah. So I just yeah. don't really think about people so, in terms of the physical. Yeah, so there was never like a pressure to be, you know, like be sporty or be whatever. I remember growing up, I remember sitting there with my uncle once actually and he was like, oh, you were never that guy to go and play outside yeah. or to play football or do skateboard. I just skateboarding once, fell off and uh-huh. like, damaged my wrist. So I just never went back so, outside yeah, again. Outside was dangerous. So, like, but then also that kind of stuck with me in itself because mm-hmm. I've always thought like, ah, oh, so in order for me to be manly or to yeah. be masculine, I need to be a part of a sport team or yeah. do a sport or be physically kind of yeah you should, alpha I mean, do- out, the space of alpha dominance yeah. or masculine dominance yeah of course and um, I'm sure people have, would say stuff like that to me I'm sure be like mm. this is what makes you a man and stuff like that but as I said it's just I mean I, I was lucky enough to have that frame of reference with my, my dad if like when his friends said something without, without any malice but they might be like you know you got to be a man when yeah. the kids come along and blah 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 like my dad always pulled me aside and be like that, that shit doesn't matter at all doesn't, oh, okay. doesn't matter so like I said there's always this person I was always thinking critically about stuff and I was very close to my mum as well so I'm mm. like my sister and mum, these are people I look up to, so... Mm. Can you cook? Yeah. Okay, what's your favourite mm. dish? I don't have one, I just... Whatever works. The best dishes, though, is, like, the best meals are home-cooked, so... Okay. One of these things where, like, if I... I could maybe be able to fix my car, but mechanics going to do better than me, so... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, like, I'll just cook whatever. I'm, I'm very much into food and stuff, so you know people have, I guess, like, zone-out television or television where you don't think I like to watch what I refer to as food porn. Mm-hmm. So I like to, like, just watch uh, things are made. I listened to something about attachment... Yeah. yeah, about you know, be like growing up and with your parents and being able to be secure in like them supporting your risks and doing all of that stuff. Yeah. And what that kind of said to me was that when people take unconventional career paths or they take these those steps to move into like something where they would be performing arts mm-hmm. or in my case podcasting, yeah, yeah, or whatever. Like, what was that like for your parents? Enabled to kind oh, of like okay. do that for you? Cause, yeah, that was cause, tough. Yeah, that was for my mum. Was very tough. And so again, it shows you that you know, even though you give oh, wow. people their status and like these job titles, my mum, as far as she's concerned, her mum's died. So she's like a, a lost girl, and she's very sad about it. And I guess it made her think about her own mortality a lot. So she was very worried about like, when are you going to have kids, and I want you to have children, and blah blah. Because again, uh, now yeah. she's projecting her fears of like loneliness or isolation, and because I don't have any children and stuff like that. So that was probably it. And I guess with most parents, it's especially where historically you've been denied certain opportunities, be they academically or industrially, then if your kids are given this opportunity, you want them to seize it with both hands, which is why people from the diaspora are like, your kids have to go to school and do well because, mm. you know, this is something historically, they weren't even, my parents were like 17 when Martin Luther King was assassinated. So a lot of opportunities that I may have now, they wouldn't even dream of. So mm. they want us to grab on, onto those with both hands. So yeah, my mother took it very hard when I'd be turning my back on like academia and stuff to be like, I want to tell jokes for a living. <laughs> yeah. Whereas my dad, I remember as far back when I was 17, he was like, against his friends, I don't care what my kids do as long as they're happy. <clears throat> and my mom was like, what does that mean? They need to be able to provide for themselves and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. Security. But, yeah, but, he was, but then he was ahead of his time because mm-hmm. then by 2008, what everybody thought was secure in the fact that you could invest in property or in a subprime mortgage or in a pension absolutely wiped off mm-hmm. you know it would have made sense for anyone to, to like give your money to an investment bank they would invest it in a security like uh, you know mortgages which we all are done the impression property is like airtight mm. and now we find that all of these kind of think, all of these um, ideas of stability we, we thought of are all castles built in sand in the mm. same way that like 
I remember in the 80s we spoke about CFCs and in the 90s we spoke about ecology and I spoke about like acid rain. Nobody listened. No. Now we're at a point now, like, saying 11 years before the state of the planet becomes irreversible. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was just like, you know, like I said, it was just all this stuff that people th take seriously or derive their esteem from. Yeah. These things are all fake. So I guess, I guess with my, so with my parents, but they, yeah. it, was, it took a while for them to see it, my mum to see it, but you know, it goes well now. But I would, I'd already anticipated that may be her reaction. Yeah. Because so many people had been like, because you're not funny or yeah. you know you, you, so because yeah. you put your parents first and obviously it also comes from a place of them wanting you to be to succeed yeah and, and, and to be, and to be safe to be, like yeah. you know unfortunately a large part of human behaviour is motivated by fear in the same way that like you know if you come out as gay to your parents it's not that they don't accept you but mm. they'll project the fear of you being stigmatised in society and try and shelter you from that you know mm. my family like you know you're going to be another black kid trying to be an entertainer trying to be on TV and blah blah, mm. blah. what are you can do with your life and like yeah, the only adversity I had in the pursuit of like success in comedy was like from my family being like, we can't, we don't do the doll. Yeah. Can't be on the doll, can't be on any receivership from the government. Yeah, like, yeah. that, that is anathema to my the family. Bar. Yeah. You, like, everything else is fine, but mm. at any point, being on receivership from the government, we don't, yeah. we don't do that. Like, yeah. and I definitely carry a lot of that from my family. But so that was the hardest part. But yeah, it was just, it was an anticipated response anyway. Mm. But I was, again, it was just, I feel like being an adult was like, I have to take responsibility for my own life. If I want something, yeah. my parents, will give me everything I needed as they have done but mm. there are certain elements of existence they can't help me with because they have no prior experience and mm. I have to get this for myself. When I was on Twitter back in the day, I mean, I remember making one of, of making a friend, and he was like, you know, don't take yourself too seriously. And, yeah. and I didn't know what that meant because I was very much like, I am going to go to uni. I'm going to be this high flying like translator. I'm going to of do course, all this. Yeah, yeah. And I was taking myself seriously, and mm -hmm. everything was an, an affront to yeah. me and stuff. And then obviously, I, I grew up and realized that you know what, like life isn't life isn't that deep. Sometimes. Yeah, yeah. But when you're doing that and part of your comedy, how does the not taking yourself so seriously get in front of your like emotional kind of like intelligence and the way that you interact with people? Because then the people will be like, "Oh, this guy's not serious," or, yeah. or is it like, "Oh, like this guy's like what is?" How do you react to that? It's, it's a mixture of both, and again, it's it's, it's uh, always taking time to. Uh be self-referential and mm. thinking about myself and how I think about things. And even if I respond negatively to, st uh, to stimuli, then it's like being aware that there's a reason for that. And just, you know, looking at my own complexes. So like, there are some times where I may react a certain way and I'm defensive or if I'm upset about something, yeah. that manifests in ways. And just being aware of that, you mm -hmm. know. For example, I might be like, oh, I speak about like an ex-girlfriend. I'm like, yeah, but why? Because really you miss her. Or there's a yeah. part of you you gave to somebody that you feel bad about because you've lost it. So I always just maintain that self-awareness. And then, you know, as human beings, we're a social species. So there's always going to be that mirror of that somewhere as well. Mm. So in the same way that someone's like, oh, well, I don't know if you could go far doing comedy and blah, blah. I'm like, we are just projecting, you know, whatever insecurity you have about the creative pursuits anyway yourself. So by knowing myself and knowing what may be at the root of whatever uh, complex I'm dealing with, that's how I don't take myself too seriously anyway. Yeah. So, yeah, I just, I think, you know, your humanity is probably the only thing you need to take seriously. Mm. Everything else really is just... yeah pretty transient but did, did it ever make it difficult for you to be vulnerable in those kind of um, spaces I think I was probably initially you know kind of I mean? guarded and that's more of a cultural thing whereby yeah. I'd be anecdotal and I'd talk about observations but there'd be that not so much I would divulge about my family because it's not something yeah. we do so that level of vulnerability in, I wouldn't do you wouldn't tap into yourself and be like this yeah. is what I feel about this exactly. situation but, but then at the same time I think now I, I do have a certain level of vulnerability it doesn't necessarily manifest as a real expressive uh, expressively or emotive, emotionally expressive Mm. But at the same time, it's like, 
I guess I'm quite a uh, poker face and how I speak about emotions anyway. Yeah. Uh, Why, so do that that Why do you think that is? Why do you think that is? I think that's, it's, it's uh, social conditioning. I grew up in like Lewisham in South East London, so okay. no one's ever massively expressive. Mm. And I also think sometimes it kind of juxtaposes very well with uh, some of the songs I'm talking about. So I can talk about stuff that's quite provocative and I'm aware that if I approach you know, a certain tone of delivery can make people feel very intimidated yeah. and certain subject matter can make people feel very guarded. Yeah. So I think it's a great way of reflecting on how not to take stuff too seriously is that I speak about things very matter-of-factly. Because I find that really weird because a lot of people are like, they say, oh, you know, but Caribbean people or African people, they're not really approachable, they're not vulnerable and all this stuff. But then you go to, you go back home and they're like the most expressive exactly. people. Like you've got... That, that, how do you think that kind of affects their day-to-day life here about not being vulnerable? Do you believe that? Because I, I, I try not to, in a sense. Like no, that. I think people are massively vulnerable and they're massively emotionally sensitive. I just don't think that uh, institutions exist that have allowed for people to explore this vulnerability. Mm. Um, a friend of mine told me recently that uh, there are more people with mental health issues in the Bar of Lambeth than in all of continental yeah. Europe. Yeah, and like, I about that. That's not surprising though, because if you look at somewhere like Lambeth and places like Brixton and Stockwell and Shretham and stories and stigmas that exist, then it's not surprising that people will be dealing with whether it's issues of anxiety or post-traumatic stress disorder, because I just think, and you know, this is a big commentary in terms of people of the, the diaspora, you can't stare into the abyss without staring back. Mm. And everyone is born of a certain level. And if you are privy to and you have to experience or see levels of emotional trauma or violence, even though it's suggested to you that that's just our everyday thing, any human being is going to be affected by that, whether mm-hmm. it's, it's introducing it to normalcy mm-hmm. in, within your own psyche or like in your interactions with other people. Mm-hmm. But I think it affects people all the time. And what happens is a lot of the time, like I said, this I, there has never really been any extensive study in terms of to the black complex and to like the effects of racism. Like we're discussing now, like especially in social media and amongst millennials, the effects of like suggestion on body image, on, yeah. on your uh, mental state, but then no one really speaks about how institutional racism would affect people. Like yeah. if you have to go to a place of work and be considered equal, but it's illegal for you to have dreadlocks when that's how your hair naturally grows, yeah. then that's going to give you a complex. You a complex. If you're yeah. going to like be told that your skin's inferior and you're going to see people ubiquitously using bleaching cream, but then at the same time, you see people gaining popularity and status because their feeling typically look like you do, in the form of collagen fillers mm. or in bum injections or self-tan, that's going to affect your mental state as well. Mm. And I just think there's just been very little field of study in terms of like the black complex and how, it, you know, you're supposed to deal with the fact that, you know, very flippantly and a lot of the time, it's said that you're inferior to people, mm. you know, so... So then again, it's like, so how do you deal with that on a day-to-day? Because I think like... Yeah, exactly, I mean, how, I mean, how do you yeah. deal with that? Because a lot of people don't have those coping mechanisms and don't have the time to actually do that. And like I said, psychiatric study, whether it's of yourself or having it done externally, mm. is a privilege that very few of us have access to. Mm. So, especially if you're, you know, from what's perceived as an underclass in very many cases, yeah. it's this idea that, you know, very gross injustice has been done to you mm. and the powers that be refuse to acknowledge that whether or not we want to accept this, it's going to give you a complex. And that manifests in a number of different ways. So then, okay, so because, you know, as a comedian, then it's like you do a lot of observation yeah. and whatnot. And, you know, in order for you to kind of like deal with the injustices of the world, mm-hmm. then then turn it into comedy and yeah. into something that's entertaining. See, when I was growing up, like whenever I, whenever I perceived there to be tension within the family, mm-hmm. I was like, I remember I made the conscious decision. If, is there something, if this is said, I'm going to make a joke. Yeah. If this is said, I'm going to be... I'm going to make a distraction. I'm going to yeah. turn it 
on its head in a way that can kind of deflect it away from everything. It's one but, of the best. It's one of the best ways well, of uh, natural ways of us rationalizing well, any kind of trauma. You absolutely. know, because you know, if you think about it, it's when people are oh, women comedians only talk about their periods. Yeah, because yeah. we don't get to talk about it anywhere else. Yeah. You know, in the same way, like so far as comedy, especially like I said, if, if you are from an oppressed minority, mm. then being able to rationalize by ridiculing your oppressor is probably one of the only tools of co- or coping mechanisms you're even privy to. There we go. But then what that did for me, though, is like I, I found that I was kind of like suppressing a lot of... <laughs> a lot of shit like yeah. a lot of the vulnerability that I could have had yeah. like even just being like being open being like this is a conversation I don't want to have even like drawing boundaries and stuff I was yeah. really just deflecting everything mm-hmm. and where was it going because I was still That's I, my I, question, I, I was at, still at what taking point did, you, did the breakdown happen <laughs> uh, what for me yeah it happened twen- when I was 24 Mm. Oh, I shouldn't say breakdown. I want to but say breakthrough more than um, breakdown. I had a breakdown. Okay, cool. Uh, several. Yeah, yeah. And then, but the breakthrough mm-hmm. then happened because of those breakdowns. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. You're at the, you're at the, you're at the bottom. Like for me, I was at the bottom. Yeah. Emotionally, I was like, look, there's nothing else but up from here. Like I have to rebuild. Yeah, exactly. This, you do you, do I mean? you remember what the catalyst was for that? A lot of it was stress. Oh, a lot yeah. Of of it was stress. A lot of it was stress and kind of me, trauma from like a lot of different. Um, yeah, all piling similar. up. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. think for me, it was a heartbreak. Heartbreak. Yeah, I think it's important for every man to go through that. Yeah, I mean, I mean heartbreak isn't always just like romantic though. No, heartbreak is in the form of like losing a loved one or something there like that. Go. But yeah. um, that really is a real test, and it's a real good exercise in you confronting and having an understanding of your masculinity. Mm-hmm. That's the thing is that like you know men are not able to nurture this emotional intelligence because it's suggested to them that heartbreak isn't supposed to affect you in the same way it affects women mm. and what men have to learn is that there is no amount of self-medication or alcohol you can drink or weights you can lift or miles you can run that's mm. going to protect you from that so for me it had to be a very uh, introspective journey mm. in terms of understanding love in terms of my place within it and you know realising that a love as an energy is not something I am able to own mm. I can harness it and I get the privilege of experiencing that but no one owns love uh, as a concept, right? And it's this experience that you get to, if, you're, you if you right are to lucky it. enough to, be, to enjoy that mutually with somebody, then it's mm. great. So, but yeah, it's definitely, for me, I'd say, if I was to say something that definitely made me a, a man, it mm. would be falling in love and losing love. Falling in love and losing it. Yeah. The thing is, like, I've had that experience with, with like, more so with friendships though. Yeah, me like, too. Me, yeah, that was, that like, was well. Like, like I said, it was, all, it was all at the same time. Like, yeah. girlfriend left me, friends, some friends were being snakes and stuff like <laughs> yeah. that. And How did you come to deal with that? Then because for me, I, I remember I was like writing in my journal, like yeah, yeah. I hate, I hate all of it. But then I was like, yeah. no new friends. I was doing Drake. I was yeah. doing that. But, then, but all of that's good. All of that yeah, is good. Yeah. It's, it's all it's all good. Um, so for me, it was like you know, it's like how can people treat people so badly? So it's like me understanding trying to. I tried to go through a very uh, academic method of like trying to study understand how people's minds work in terms of how you can be apathetic to a human being and studying psychosis and then neurosis as well and mm. like serial killers and how can someone not care about anybody and yeah. like and then like going through that state and it's like so I guess it's the, it it was just the normal stages of uh, coping with loss or grief mm-hmm. so it's like you know the denial anger bargaining and acceptance yeah and so it was identifying all of those stages and then finding those parallels with other people because we are a social species and you know normally when you break up with somebody and then someone who's a bit more experienced will say oh you'll get over it and you yeah. think why the fuck would you say that to me I'm not gonna are you stupid <laughs> are you blind my heart is broken I am in the darkness naked in the dark alone in the and corner. it's raining in my soul <laughs> black acid rain and you say I'll get over it that's why you're not a manager Sharon because you're a fucking idiot and that's the kind of yeah and then you get over but then, but then Sharon was right yeah what's your so, break up big, big up Sharon what's a what's a <laughs> 
What's a um what's a breakup song for you? For me? What's what's what's, what's a What's you, a good breakup song? What's a good breakup song? Uh um, R and B songs which just happy. Yeah, good R and B songs. Oh, good breakup songs. I got a few. Um oh, wow, okay. there's one called uh, Nothing Left to Say by Mint Condition. Mm. Um Broken Hearted by Brandy and Wanya Morris from Boys to Men. Oh jeez. That's a good one. Um so sick by Neo. So sick. That's a good one. Um, I don't know what I knew about that song. I was like thirteen. Oh, and probably the one that is a uh, I Never Dream You Leave Me in Summer by Stevie Wonder. Oh. Yeah. So, but I can listen. But now I listen to them and I, I smile. And you appreciate because I appreciate that someone else is able to articulate this loss, which mm-hmm. means I'm not alone in this. Truly. Yeah. So the fact that people can use these things as a catalyst or reference points to fuel mm-hmm. creativity means that you can never be alone, and everyone experiences this pain. Yeah. And this pain is necessary for you to revel when you experience joy yeah so yeah it's a cool journey man journey so in school it's all about who loses their virginity and who can take it yes from someone very true um you made a joke about this in one of your sketches yeah um so what was the root of this well yeah just in truth in that like i remember like the how daunting the idea about losing your virginity was and stuff like that like i was a virgin until i was 18 and uh yeah it was always going to be a good point and i i Felt good doing that joke because it was like, I can talk about this without any, any element of like, you know, insecurity mm. and about that fact. And um, yeah, it, it was, it, for me, it was just like, because I, was, I recall being at the time, I was going to a boys' school in Southeast London. And like I said, when you don't see yourself represented in any kind of legal or legislative or political kind of mm. paradigm, like for most immigrant men, you can only assert your dominance or masculine dominance by them being able to conquer women. Yeah. And that goes further that men have this idea that the female sexuality is like a machine and your dick is the battery as if women don't have a sexuality by themselves and stuff. Because like the idea, for some men, like even the idea of women even ha- having control and autonomy of their own sexuality and like, if you if I can't find a man, I'll pleasure myself. Like, you know what I mean, men? Yeah. Like if they know a woman has a sex toy, they're like, no, nah, what have you got that for? I'm in your life now. Throw that away. What's wrong yeah, with yeah. you? But again, like I said, I grew up around women anyway. So mm. the idea of just even the initiation of courtship and speaking to women yeah. was not foreign to me. So it wasn't that I had a problem with women, but I was also quite a late bloomer. Yeah. So that was probably more the insecure about my body and stuff anyway, because yeah. I would, I guess I wouldn't develop, mm. strictly speaking, until I was like 17 anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So that was probably the biggest part of the insecurity. It wasn't like women didn't want to sleep with me, but I'm like, can I, yeah, can I do it? It, you would, it would make you a child molester because I'm still a child physically. <laughs> so I have of, of no use to you. And then, but like, again, it was just like, like yeah. Luckily, I had a frame of reference whereby my mother was a nurse. Yeah. So she was very uh, emphasized the point of respecting women and being aware of bodies as well as my own. Yep. And I had my, my older sisters and stuff like that. And even though we didn't go into graphic detail about sex, mm-hmm. it's more the fact that I know what the effects of mistreating a woman has on somebody. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. ne- I never go, I'm never going to visit that on somebody else. So my first time, and that's why I was able to speak about it because, again, I wanted it for people to know that, again, this is not something to take too seriously. Yeah. And I, like, you know, people talk about virginity in their flower and stuff. Yeah. That's, but that analogy is one of the best ways to describe your sexuality because a flower or a plant, how it grows, it grows in very different ways and mm. there's a function of nature and nurture. There's certain aspects of your sexuality that are natural to you and they're genetically predisposed and there's a large part of your sexuality that is influenced by external factors in the same way that, yeah. like, a plant will grow a certain way depending on where it receives sunlight from, where it has a vill- uh, access to nutrients. And that's mm-hmm. the same thing with your sexuality. Yeah. Some people, if they experience a certain form of sexual trauma, that'll be manifested in who they're uh, attracted to. And there's certain elements of normalcy that some yeah. people do, they think it's okay and some isn't. Some people might be certain, open about certain aspects of their sexuality. Mm-hmm. But for me, like, you know, like, not again, to be graphic about my sex life, again, I've learned, it's been a positive thing whereby a lot of men, and obviously men are always trying to manage sexuality versus the... Uh, the caricaturization of sexuality in a form of like pornography mm-hmm. and whereas myself it's like 
there's never been anything where I'm like, I wish I could do that, but I can't because mm. I, what I have learned and it's been that like, as long as you respect someone's mind first, their, their body will normally follow as well. Mm. So if you allow someone to be free and be psychologically free around you and express who they are, then yeah. their body will follow. So, yeah. but again, like I said, it's that. not something you take too seriously because we all get to a point in our to life where being able to get out of bed will mean more to you than who you go to bed with. Yeah. So in the same way that That's like true. your sexuality is like a flower because at some point at the autumn of your life it will begin to wilt and it will fade and not, not necessarily a bad thing but like you get to an age where really sex will not be that big yeah. of a deal and you know we all become quite gender fluid in terms yeah. of the fact that like women will go through the menopause and they'll no longer have that clear distinction of menstruating to make them all right. as a man like you maybe become infertile your balls will begin to sag and they won't be of use <laughs> and you'll have your own boobs of yourself so we all become the same in the end anyway you know? women end up getting goatees men get titties it's like, like you know, <laughs> none of it matters really it's a little window, man, of like sex, man. And sex. The only reason sex is an issue is because uh, we've been taught it, it yeah. sells. Yeah. And what we really, really should learn about is the cost. Yeah. From what you said, that point about, you know, it doesn't matter who you go to bed with, but if you can get out of bed yeah. in the morning, that's really... That's what's going to matter in the end. That, that's really key. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, it's definitely key. And it's mm. like, and you know, there's a reason why, like my dad, he's never like, hey, you getting some son? That's my boy. <laughs> we don't have those kind of discussions because it, he's, it doesn't matter. And, yeah. you know, like, and that's one of these things, it's like, it's like when people say like uh, a milf. It's like yeah, sounds good to that's, you. That's edible. But yeah, but that mother's son doesn't want to hear how fuck a boy's mother is. Yeah, you know. So it's just one of these kind of jobs. But like mm. again, it's it's for me. Whoever, whichever group someone's from, or whether someone's talking about their sexuality or their sexual congress, I'm. I don't really think about it and having to think very graphically about yeah. it. Like, you know, some people are like, oh, I don't want to hear about like, like, like I said, I grew up in a, an environment where, you know, there are a lot of very homophobic attitudes towards mm. sex and stuff like that. People yeah. are like, yeah, I'm all right with geese, but I don't want to know what they're doing. It's like, well, well <laughs> I don't want to know what anyone's doing. That doesn't involve me, really. Like, you really business. think, like, if I hear about, I walked into a room and my parents are fucking, I'd be like, well, this is good heterosexual Christian love. This doesn't traumatize me at all. I don't care. Yeah. About, I, I, don't, I don't need to know about anybody else's, but, you know. Like I said, everyone's sexuality is like a flower and you choose how you water that to get the best plumage for yourself, innit? Why do you think homophobia is such a big issue in the black community? I think there are a number of reasons. I think some of it is uh, the uh, echoes of Judeo-Christian indoctrination. Yeah. I think some of it, because of that, is that, you know, a lot of accounts of missionaries who were oppressing their own homosexuality would be able to yeah. act out their fantasies on the continent and people not know so there's a lot of mistrust in terms of that yeah. uh, and unfortunately it's led to this conflation of molestation with homo homosexuality yeah. and I think some of it is just fear I think like I said if you are uh, from a, a community where everyone else gets to enjoy I guess the benefits of patriarchy yeah. whereas like men will lead industry men will lead politics mm -hmm. and you are uh, marginalised from that then you're already in sense insecure about your masculinity mm -hmm. so as I said for a lot of working class black men, they only get to assert their masculine dominance through conquest of women. Mm -hmm. And like, how many girls can you get? Like, that's yeah. just a big indicator. So like, if someone exists outside of that, then... Yeah. So if yeah. you're not a gallist, then what are you? Yeah, what are you? Yeah, you're, you're, you're some kind of bad man. That's, yeah. This is how people used to talk. Yeah. But then by the same token, I would also argue that being open and being gay has been something that black men have led as well. Because like, Lil Richard mm -hmm. was openly gay for a long time. Lil Richard? Uh, the uh, rock star, oh, okay, yeah, pianist, yeah, yeah. Rid Lil Richard, uh, Frank Ocean, been as out as well. Yeah. I mean, Odd Future, as you see, very really Odd Future. Like you think about Sid the Kid and the Internet, like again as open as there's been, Lil Nas X, yeah. Lil Nas X as well. So a lot of time we've definitely led the charge. Yeah, uh, so far as uh, you know, Justin Fashionu mm -hmm. being yeah. the first open uh, gay footballer as well. Yeah. So 
even though it seems that we are stigmatized by being like very rigidly homophobic, I think we've definitely led the charge and I guess it's a nice part of our rebellious nature anyway. Oh, and uh, Langston Hughes as well. Langston Hughes. Yeah, yeah. And James Baldwin. Yeah. Queen Latifah. So I say like, arguably a lot of black iconoclasts have uh, been very open in terms of even discussing sexuality because you know Richard Pryor spoke about like you know his sexual trauma being very very young and stuff as well so um, on the one hand even though we are quite repressed I think maybe that's because we are maybe a lot more aware of our affinity with sexuality as well also and this might be controversial yeah but go with me on this one because if you're an African-American man, there's mm-hmm. a 33% chance you spend some time being incarcerated. If you get locked up as a YO or a young offender and you're like 15, 16, mm. and you spend a large part of your, what for most people is our sexual awakening, when you're just around people of the same sex, Actually, yeah. your idea of what sexuality is or your attraction going to be warped. is going to be warped somewhat, yeah. right? If you grow up and you just be around other men, then when you're from the ages of like 15 to 21 or you spend time incarcerated and you're closing to a woman is either, your, either the custodial officer or, you know, another trans inmate, then when your body starts, like I said, it's about the whole flower thing, depending on where it grows, mm. your experience of sexuality is going to be very... Yeah, it's going to uh, change. It's gonna be, yeah, it's going to be changed. Yeah. But I don't want people to think I'm saying that's no, what no, no. makes you gay. But then at the same time, it's like... Well, it's, it's, it's experience, It's experience, right? but and, even at the same time, for me, it's like, you know, this, like, your sexual orientation yeah. versus the expression of sexual activity are necessarily the same. Because yeah. you can be gay, but then if you don't have a man to have any sexual contact with, then I guess you're just a homosexual on paper, right? Yeah. So, okay. Okay. yeah. So it's, it's like it's conflating the sexuality versus the versus the romantic element because I know they split like they split that. Um, yeah, this, I mean, because yeah. because yeah, and and uh, but also by the same token, but then at the same time, it's like, oh, are we referring to like the act of homosexual sex? Is it someone of the same sex, or is it like the fact that mm. you are you re- had chief climax because you're penetrated anally? Because mm. some dude is into like pegging and stuff, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah. So I mean, yeah. earlier on in the my chat, you've mentioned CBT. So what was that like? And why did you, what was the turning point for you that made you um, want to go into therapy? And It came from a lot of people saying I have anger issues and that I should go and get some help. Um, okay. Girlfriend at the time. Therapist told me to leave her, so <laughs> that's fine. Yeah. But um, yeah, for me, it was, it was just like, I guess, yeah, that was a big part of it. People are like, you have anger management issues. And what mm. I just realized is that some people just have seldom a lot of interaction with a black person with a strong ideological disposition. There we go. And uh, we are always... And want to be heard. Yeah, and we want to be heard. And they have something valid to say, but a lot of the time our narratives are reduced to aggression, which I find strange because like, if I speak about my craft and observations and how I see the world, people will say that I'm aggressive, but no one ever calls Gordon Ramsay aggressive for putting two pieces of bread on someone's head and calling them an idiot sandwich. <laughs> and I just want a world where I can just get treated by Gordon Ramsay. Like I just want to be like Gordon Ramsay to people and not have to end up in prison because there's of that. something really going on there, isn't there? Like, yes, I'm saying to you, you know, I mean, no one ever used to angry say, man. No one ever used to tell Jack D to smile, right? Or Dennis Leary. Like Dennis Leary was never called aggressive and stuff. But as if I have, if I want to express myself vocally or I show dissent, mm. then it's immediately referred to as like aggression. Yeah. What was what was your time in CBT like? It was cool, man. She's a she's a she was Mauritian and. Oh, right. uh, it was nice because she spoke about some of her angst and some of her frustrations in terms of her own line of work, especially within the field of study that she was in. Oh, she really shared? Yeah, she did because, okay. I, I mean, I, I will always be cynical if you don't share. Because yeah. like I said, you can't stare into the abyss without it staring back at you. You know so what I mean? She must be hypersensitive and yeah. be aware to other complex she's dealing with. And, you know, I was trying to coax it out of her that, like, what we do refer to as, like, aggression or misanthropy, a lot of the time it's like, like I said, if you are a black person, like James, James Baldwin himself said, if yeah. you are a black person and you are self-aware, growing up in the West... There's going to be an element of anger there somewhere. Mm. There has to be. 
Yeah. There has to be. Like, you know, whether or not we like it, if you, you can think of any one of your icons, any one of your creative icons, and look at their life journey. And everyone's life journey will have, like, you know, the crests and the troughs and the triumphs and the tribulations. But, like, very... There's only a certain group of people who could be like, at one point, yeah, I had to deal with racism. Yeah. Whether or not you like it, it's like, not everyone can say that, but if you're a black person at some point, especially if you are someone like Circa, Motown, etc., yeah, yeah. at some point you could be like, so what was the hard part? Well, I couldn't even eat in this restaurant because <laughs> yeah, I'm black. You, you couldn't perform in this Not time. everyone has that story. So to, to assume that there wouldn't be some level of anger or resentment there yeah. when like, you know, just the simple fact that if you are a law-abiding taxpayer, the police will still treat you like a second-class citizen even though you are the person paying their salary. Yeah. There has to be some level of resentment about that. And the fact that society continues to try and reduce that is why we're going to continue to unravel psychologically because people are refusing to acknowledge this. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it is, it's, yeah. it's, for me, it's just having those discussions without having to deal with people being guarded and being like, well, Dane, have you tried looking at yeah, the... No, don't be so nice, aggressive. Yeah, nice because people continue... Because, yeah. the, because, you know, in the same way that some people refuse to accept this and if mm. they see that these institutions they've given over power to are yeah. flawed, then it means that all of the esteem that they have based on these truths is full of shit and then people have to start taking responsibility for their own life mm. but I would suggest to people for example we all know that it's one thing being a child molester yeah? being a Catholic child molester is even worse because you are taking people in under the guise of hope yep. and, and then you're purity abusing your and abusing it yeah. the same token I'm not saying all police are corrupt but if you see corruption within the police force more than anybody else you should be outraged yeah like we can be angry about police brutality and, and actions of police corruption, but the police themselves, because you're you taking route, your job yeah. under the guise that you are going to defend order and law. Mm. So if you, so if by you not being the first person to turn somebody in, then there's something wrong with you. It means that you're valuing this institution over the whole pretense of like, well, I guess legality because law isn't the same as morality. Yeah, absolutely. To answer the question in a more succinct way, it was just me having the opportunity to talk about stuff like this without having this being suspended by people's kind of. Uh, cognitive dissonance. So having to exist all through that as a black man, like yeah, and in London, much. like how how do you practice good mental health? Like, cause me, I'm just I, there. Are days I'm just in my room, you know, just sitting on this. And I think sometimes thinking, it's healthy, but boy, I, I, for me, it was just like again. Breaths. So for me, the whole uh, aesthetic of Dame Baptiste as a brand and as a comedian was that yeah. like I want to provide this uh, image where I am dealing with these same complexes, but ridicule is a very effective way of dealing with that like if the, if the idea was about masculine aggression being us be able to defeat our oppressors well we would have won that war a long time yeah. ago so instead it's like you know using weapons like ridicule and just trying to disseminate information about some of these systems which are used to oppress you or to impede you is to like let people know how we can kind of ridicule them because for all these years then it's like you know as a black man you're dealing with this stuff now you're seeing white cisgender heterosexual men now dealing with their emperor's new clothes complex Yeah, in that now, because of the democratization of, of social media, how people have been speaking about the dominant culture for so yeah. long, mm-hmm. now they're aware of it. Mm-hmm. And some guys can't handle this. No. Because, they, it's because fragile. you know, yeah. not all of it is just like deep-rooted racism. Something, some of it is just conformity. Yeah. And if you live in a place where privilege benefits you, then you're going to happily conform to it. In the same way that, like, I might be like, sweatshops and blah, blah, blah. But <laughs> I still got my iPhone and I still got my nice clothes. Yeah. So I benefit from that. So the question is, am I prepared to compromise all of that for a state of, um, equality all over the world mm-hmm. and not a lot of people are prepared to have that conversation in the same way that like, like I said if you are a straight white man like you're not necessarily an evil person but all of the indicators around you where oh, for you. advertising are like for you like hey buddy how's it going mm-hmm. now all of a sudden you're on the internet everyone's like I hate white men you're like <laughs> well, 
why? Your whole what? identity is yeah, like, You're like, I, I, like, I like going to Thailand and having a good trip and blah, blah. Sex tourists. <laughs> a lot of, because like I said, these, these guys have been told that they that look fine, fine and now they're saying the emperor's not wearing any clothes. Yeah. So a lot of these guys are losing their minds and being like, everyone hates us. I didn't even know this. Yeah. And, it's, it's, and, and again, because, and that's because of the paradigm of privilege. To everyone else, it suggested that you're predisposed to be better than us and have a better life. Yeah. So if it transpires you don't, we can't empathize with you because we're supposed to be separate. So it's like, you know, yeah, but a lot of white guys commit suicide in their 40s and they have lots of NUE and existential crisis. But we're all like, how? <laughs> Life's perfect for you. Shut up. Because we're because it's because there's the like, powers that be have always driven this separation. Yeah, like why are you running? Why are you running? Yeah, yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So okay. So for me, like I said again, it's just it, I guess my rationalization has always been a large part of having us all have to confront these uh, this, this phenomenon mm. and realising that these things aren't that serious. Mm-hmm. Um, I always try and let people know who are dealing with existential crisis, especially with the state of the world now, yeah. that we have been here before mm-hmm. and it's been worse for our predecessors before. Yeah. And it took that as a catalyst for change. Yeah. And sometimes all of this uh, political uncer- instability and uncertainty has happened before yeah. and that is necessary for people who do want to see something progressive to galvanize and to like dispense with identity politics and focus on what brings us together mm-hmm. rather than these declarations of what separates yeah, yeah. and so yeah I'm just kind okay. of be like yeah so I just try I guess like any just, journalist or creative I'm just trying to chronicle our existence and yeah, then just trying to get through yeah and try and get through and, yeah. but, but I guess by being as transparent as possible and how I am dealing with it mm-hmm. is that that will pass on on holographic principle and be like people can see something and be like oh, Dane's got this bit on it that makes this quite funny yeah. and yeah so yeah okay cool um, so what are you working on now is there anything that you're that you're doing that you can talk about or? so my new, I'm working on a new show which I'll be touring uh, nationally and internationally next year mm-hmm. and the show is called The Chocolate Chip The Chocolate Chip yeah and the reason why is because like prior to our therapy and stuff if I discuss any angst or dissent people will say you oh, are someone's got a chip on their shoulder yeah. you've got a chip on your shoulder that's oh, your problem so angry. you've got a chip on your shoulder your dad was firebombed in the house in a race attack for New Year's Eve well it sounds like you've got a chip on your shoulder <laughs> Your mother lost three pints of blood during childbirth because of how people don't believe that black women experience the same level of pain and you have a much higher pain threshold. You got a chip on your shoulder. What's there to be angry about? You're here, aren't you? And so I was like, in the interest of like this new zeitgeist of embracing body image mm-hmm. and people like, curves are fine. Who's ever said there was a problem with curves? Uh, not us, because we're black in it. So it's yeah, always so been we fine. See that. We've already seen that. So yeah, but... So for me, it's like in this world now where we are embracing body image and we are embracing conversations about mental health, I was like, you know what? I like having a chocolate chip. Mm. I like moaning and being angry about stuff. Yep. So it's called a chocolate So it, my uh, anger complex, okay. the chocolate chip is my uh, affectionate name for my anger complex. Amazing. So uh, most people have pet peeves, but I yeah, treat my pet peeves like Michael Vick. All right. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, the show is basically about like anger and stuff. And, 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 and first of all, obviously from a personal and stuff that pisses me off, but by the same token being like, you know, if really pay attention to what's happening in the world, mm-hmm. we would all be angry. Okay. Do you know there's a film called Network from 1976? And it's, yeah. Yeah, the clip when the guy's I like, know. I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. So the, yeah. the, the, my show is basically about me being like, yeah, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. And really, if you guys think about why you should be mad too, you don't have to take this shit anymore because this yeah. is fucking bullshit. Yeah. Like, you know, I say to people all the time, we bailed out the banks. Yeah. That makes us majority shareholders. That's like, even if you are a conservative or a Republican, by free market economics, by you being the biggest investor, you are the majority shareholders that means if your company you've invested in reports a profit you should receive a preferential dividend because you're the majority shareholders yeah. so if that's not happening that's a, that's a fair summation that's a, it's, that's, anyone should ask that type of question yeah. right mm-hmm. so 
Absolutely true. In the same way that like when we talk about like congestion charges and stuff like that, it's like I'm not polluting like to this level. Mm-hmm. There's a way of dealing with this. Or when people say, Oh, you hate the country because you don't buy a poppy. No, I don't need to buy a poppy because I will happily invest in the NHS yeah. and provide national health care to anybody who's so been involved as a combatant yeah. will have access to physiotherapy or if they didn't require any prosthesis, they yeah. can get that. That's going to be more effective than a freaking poppy. So if you are really concerned about helping our troops, maybe you should fight for a nationalised healthcare service instead of buying a plastic flower that you're going to throw the fuck away and then add to like ec- ecological fucking damage. Okay. Why do you think it's time for men in particular to talk about this now, talk about mental health now? Astrologically, you're in the age of Aquarius. and uh, Which means we're in the age of change, right? Age of change, yeah. Okay. And, and the, also the, and the feminine. Okay. So this is the time of the, this is the time of our existence when the feminine is going to prevail. Mm. So really, men need to acknowledge it because if you don't start entertaining your the feminine part of your brain, then you're going to fucking lose it. And also, men, if they want, if women wanted you dead, you'd be fucking dead, <laughs> because every man on this planet in existence has cried for a woman's love. Because that happens when you're born. Yeah. You cry, and your mother will nurse you, and then that's how you survive. So if they wanted you dead, you'd be fucking dead. <laughs> so just relax, innit? Before we wrap up, I want to talk about books that matter. So it's the last yeah. section of the podcast. Mm-hmm. And this is where myself yes. and my humble guest, uh, we recommend a book that is related to the topic of today's episode or just something that's trying to change your life, mm-hmm. you know, in a way, and to make, you, make your life a bit better. Yeah. So, what book do you want to suggest for right. us? To- yeah, well, the first book is We Should All Be Feminists by Shimanda. Uh, um, in Adichie and Gossi, I, I, I apologize. But it's a very it's quick be, book. Yeah, and it's again, book. it's a um, really enjoyable read. And, you know, this is somebody who Beyonce sought out to do skits on her album. So, you know, she's on the level. Yeah. So that's great, especially for, you know, like I said, people of the diaspora. I'm ancestrally Nigerian as well. So support your sisters, them. Read it. Okay. It's a great book. Okay. And then the book I definitely recommend for everybody to read is a book called Weapons of Mass Instruction mm-hmm. by a guy called John Taylor Gatto. Mm-hmm. He spent about 30 years in uh, Americans' academic institutions teaching English to kids mm-hmm. and got to the point where he realized it was bullshit. And then what happens, in fact, is that a lot of institutionalized uh, academia is very much geared to making us um, conform into work. Mm. The reason why I say I'd favor to read that book is that let's all ask ourselves, can we anyone think of a billionaire that finished school? Crickets. Yeah. <laughs> Crickets. Because, you know, can you anyone think of their time throughout school where they were being taught by a billionaire? <laughs> So again, but isn't the idea that you go to school in order for you to learn the tools which will allow you to realize your maximum financial potential? Mm. So then why would someone who doesn't even know how to be a millionaire themselves be teaching me how to get a good job? Yeah, Most of the people that you see educating you and telling you to go to school, their financial success and their status is in no way related to acad- academia at all. Yeah, Like when David Beckham's like, work hard kids. Why, David? If I learn to cross a ball, it's going to be much better. Yeah. So, th- so this book basically is a book that will confirm all of your uh, deepest suspicions about society. Okay. The idea of the book, for me, was very helpful creatively to make people realise that, like, when you are on this train and you are going back and forth from your commute to and from work and you're like, man, this is fucking bullshit, this book will be like, you know what? It is bullshit. And here is why. So I recommend everybody read that book. It's called Weapons of Mass Instruction by John Taylor Gatter. Okay, okay. Um, I kind of have two as well, actually. One is Mask Off, Masculinity Redefined by just JJ Bola. I started so, reading it. Big up JJ. Yeah, so he was on the he was on the tail end of uh, what matters before this oh, changed. Time to talk. And um, yeah, amazing. 
amazing book. It's just like he comes with all the facts, all the percentages, all the stats, all the the ONS reports, everything. That's what I mean, but it's a real and one. I mean, and that, that's what you need. And that's what I'm saying. Like you know, that's he. That, that's an aspirational figure there, JJ man. Definitely. Very much in touch with femininity, his creativity, yeah. emotions. But at the same time, man, fucking tall, handsome, like, like just like, dark and handsome African dude, man. Yeah. And he's this close to not. He did my podcast, and I'm like, do I even want to take a picture next to this guy? Because it looks like a before and after thing for a gym <laughs> if we stand next to each other. <laughs> Stupid, every day playing basketball stupid handsome every, JJ every day, every day stretching on <laughs> yeah, do you know what I mean but yeah no um, I definitely say get that book I mean he talks about you know, like toxic masculinity fragile masculinity he kind of each chapter is an album title and that just again just really good really good book so really I say good. go out and get that but then there's another book that I um, on the topic of masculinity still that had me crying like when I was what 19, I want to say. It was called Re Real Cool by Black Men, Black Men and Masculinity by Bell Hooks. Mm. And that was that the first thing that really taught me about, you know, white supremacist, heterosexual, capitalist, all of them kind of things. And, you know, it, she kind of breaks down masculinity from slavery all the way down. Obviously, a lot of yeah. it is the African-American context. So um, I get it. It was relatable content. It was relatable content yeah, from across sure. the diaspora. Sure. So I'd say those two, those two books are the books to kick off um, and I would say that go out and get them um, they're amazing check it out and, and uh, also I want people to understand when we're discussing things like black or white we're talking about states of mind mm. being rather than actual races because you know there is no definition of race scientifically race, you know. there's human race there's no definition scientifically but you know like I said there's some people that believe in the tenets of capitalism and like you know mm. uh, rapacity of right resources and some people believe in an affinity with, with the motherland and mm. we've yeah. got to find out how that's going to work in the next few years you trust me everybody yeah. Thanks so much, Dane, for coming on the show. It's been an absolute show. pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been amazing. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Uh, where can people connect and find you online? I'm sure they can uh, just Google you. Yeah, I, I will be. Um, <laughs> for tour dates, uh, danebaptiste.co.uk and for yeah. uh, content, I have my own YouTube channel. Okay. So uh, give Dane Baptiste to Google and you'll find some good stuff. Or like amazing. I said, I'm on all your good socials, isn't it? So wherever okay. you are, uh, wanting to find out more about uh, my work or you want to have it out with me and you're a racist, I'm not scared of either, you it? So Crazy. come and find me on Twitter, innit? I do troll you, don't it? You'll get taken down. When so. you, what's, what's the first date? Like, First date, uh, begins in fe- tour begins in February. February, okay. So, yeah. Okay, so that's Look out for that, y'all. Guys, but I'm in between now and then, I'm about, so just like, find that gig near to you, stay in touch, guys, and uh, yeah, check out some content. It'll yeah. be a pleasure. Guys, look out for you. Look out for you. Thanks again, Dane. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. You can get in touch with me on socials, on Twitter. I am TTTalkPod and at AlexReads on Instagram and Vero. You can also send an email to the podcast at tttalkpod at gmail.com. Let me know your thoughts on the episode and if you have a personal story you would like to share related to what we've talked about on today's episode or in general, I'd love to hear from you. Don't forget to rate and subscribe on Global Player or wherever you get your podcasts. That's all from me. Have a great week.